Okay, well, thank you very much. We're going to spend some time now looking at the Scriptures. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible. Uh, we'll be in Luke chapter 1. Uh, we've chosen this year through the Advent season to just march through Luke. We're looking at doing a further study in the book of Luke in the new year. Um, and so for the Advent season, we're just going through an order, seeing how Luke tells the story from the very beginning. Last week, we saw the hope that came through the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. This week, we're moving into the theme of love as we see the announcement that the angel makes to Mary. Uh, and so if you don't have a Bible, we're going to be on page 855 in the black Bibles you'll find under the chairs. If you don't have one at home, you're welcome to keep those. We have extras. We'd love for you to have your own Bible there. Uh, but the name for the sermon this week is Love Changes Us. Love Changes Us. And we'll be in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. One of my uh, favorite examples of this from a movie is a scene in the movie Elf where Buddy the Elf just bursts into an important board meeting, an important business meeting, and he's swinging around, he's twirling, he's got the goofy fur hat, and he's throwing the hat off, and he says, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. And it's just this a beautiful scene of how ridiculous we can become when we're in love, Right? And it's a great example of how love changes us. This theme comes up again and again in movies and stories and music especially. It's a, a common literary theme. Love changes us. How much more if romantic love can make us giddy, can make us silly, can make us happy and joyful, how much more will the love of the God of the universe transform us? And that's what we're going to be looking at in our story this week. We're going to be looking at the ways that God's love entering into space and time through the birth of Jesus transformed everybody around. Now, I just want to clarify before we read our story that the New Testament spells it out, uh, explains it in certain passages, right? Defines love for us. Like 1 Corinthians 13 is a great place you can look for a definition of love. Uh, 1 John chapter 4 gives us a definition of Love as well. We'll come back to that at the end of our sermon today. And so it's clarified for us that true love, its, its highest expression is in a God who would give us unconditional love by saving us. That Jesus would take our sin upon his back. He would die for us. He would rise from the dead and he would save us from sin and death. And we have to recognize that this is in a distinction. This is different than how our society defines love right? How does our society define love? Our society defines love almost exclusively as romance. The example of Buddy the Elf, right? I'm attracted to someone, I'm attracted to someone, and I don't care who knows it, right? Because I'm attracted to someone, I will give my life to them. There's nothing wrong with that, right? That's great, but that's not biblical love. Biblical love is the unconditional sacrifice that we make for the good of another, and this is also in contrast to the first century models of love. Both in Roman society and Jewish society, they had, they had little hints of this unconditional love. And of course, we would say clearly in the Old Testament, there are hints of this and examples of this. But they tended to default to an earning system, right? Love was the care you gave to someone because they deserved it, because they loved you. So you love them. Biblical love is God loves us first. It's unconditional. It's his action in history. And so what we're going to read in this story is we're going to see this beginning to unfold, right? How, do, how does this God 
invade our world. That's the story that we're reading about here as we look at the birth announcement to Mary. So we're going to start with Luke 1, verse 26. I'm just going to start us with a few verses to give us kind of the direction, and then we'll read the rest of them as we move through it this morning. So Luke 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. We just sang a variation of this. He shall reign forever and ever. The king we've been waiting for has come. That's the promise that Gabriel is making to Mary. She's going to give birth to this perfect king. I'm going to pray for our time. Pray that the Spirit would meet with us. That as we read the story, as we think about the story, that God would change our hearts. So let me pray for our time. God, we ask that you would be with us. That your Spirit would awaken our hearts to the wonder of what you're doing in the world, what you have done and what you are doing and what you are going to do in the future. God, we need you. We pray that you would fill our own hearts, that you would open our own minds, that you would make us receptive to you, that you would be with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea is that love changes us. That's the big idea. And as I said, it's really spelled out in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 13, love is defined, and we see how it works. And uh, 1 John 4, we'll come back to it at the end. It describes how God's love for us in Jesus changes us, transforms us. But what we're going to uncover in this text is we're going to kind of see it unfolding from the very beginning of the announcement. We're going to see the kind of narrative story version of how it unfolds. So we'll see three things, three acts, if you will, as this unfolds. Number one, love initiates. Love initiates. Number two, we'll see that love brings joy. Love brings joy. And then number three, we're going to see that love puts things in perspective. Love puts things in perspective. So number one, God's love initiates. We started this part, verses 26 through 38, Already we see God's love initiating. Um, God is bringing his love to us. He's not waiting for Mary or for you or for me to initiate with him. God is invading space and time. God is announcing, this is what I'm doing. I am keeping my promises. And this is a really important theme biblically. We see this defined in Deuteronomy 7 verse 7. It says that God didn't love the people of Israel in the Old Testament because they were so lovable He loved them because of his own character. He says, I love you because I love you, because that's the kind of God I am. And that's the same thing we see unfolding here when Gabriel makes the announcement to Mary. God loves us because he is a loving God. God's not waiting for you or for me to get our perfect life together, to win his attention. No, God bestows his love, his grace on us. His sovereign grace initiates kindness in our life. 
And that's what we see unfolding in this story. And so again, we see the announcement to Mary. She's afraid. We see this story coming to this remote place, Nazareth, a very small town. It's out in the sticks. It's in the middle of nowhere to this virgin. And she's being greeted by an angel. Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled. It said at the saying in verse 29, she was trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said in verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And we have to remind ourselves of what we said last week. We saw Gabriel, the angel again, last week announcing the birth of John the Baptist. And remember what we said last week, angels are always terrifying. There are very few stories where they just kind of appear as normal people. The, the exchange with Abraham was a little bit like that. Even there, they were a little bit scary, right? They're not just cute little fat babies. Angels are terrifying because they represent the presence of God. And so we have this picture that reminds us of God's initiating love and our need for his grace. We see this again and again in all these stories as they unfold. We see an angel appear. They represent God's holiness, God's perfection, and people are terrified Right When we get close to God, when we get close to God's holiness, we become more aware of our sinfulness. We want to melt before him. This is clear in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is like, I am undone. That's the normal posture of people who see God's perfection. We're aware of our need. And then we're greeted with God's kindness. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Here, he says, literally, you have found favor, Mary. You found favor. What's another way to say that? You're being given grace. This is the concept of grace. God doesn't love us because we deserve it. God loves us because of his kindness, his grace. We often like to define the word grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. We have a holy, perfect God who initiates love in our life. And the only thing we can do is receive it. That's all we can do. We can't conjure up a deservingness on our part. No, we don't deserve it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we see God initiating his love. And the only thing we can do is be like Mary and say, okay, I receive this love. I trust in your initiating love. He goes on and he describes the plan, right? Verse 31, look at the plan. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. That literally means Yahweh saves. That's what the name means. It's a variant of Joshua or Yeshua. And so his name's going to be Jesus, Yahweh saves. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So King David gave us this example in the Old Testament that God has a plan to be a good king over his people. And yet David failed. He was a sinner. And then he gave promises to David that you will have a a son. In 2 Samuel 7, we see these promises that there will be a forever throne, right? And yet Solomon, David's son, failed. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the king that's promised that does not fail, who will reign forever. The leader we've all been waiting for. We finally have this perfect leader, this perfect king in Jesus. And that's what's promised here. Verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. We all long for this sovereign king who will fix everything. The world is on fire. Everything's falling apart. Everything's crazy in our world. We long for this perfect king that loves us, that is kind, that will rule justly. And that's the king that we have in Jesus. 
Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She understood basic biology. This is physically impossible to have a baby as a virgin. And the angel answered her. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is not the answer of the Greeks that would have the gods come down in physical form and marry a woman, be with a woman physically. No, this is something different. He's saying, no, God's power will overshadow you in such a way that you will still be a virgin and miraculously give birth to a child. And so this child will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is going to be a miracle baby. This is going to be something absolutely different than we've ever than we've ever seen before. Verse 36, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Saying as a reminder, as a prompt, as an encouragement to you, you're also going to see that God is working miraculously in your cousin's life. She's pregnant with John the Baptist. Verse 37, For nothing will be impossible with God, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Nothing's impossible with God. Our response is, let it be true. I trust you. Love initiates. God starts the process. And we say, yes, Lord. Yes and amen. I receive you. Mary is giving us the example to follow. And throughout church history, we've often gotten mixed up about this because throughout church history, there's, also, there's, there's often been this kind of picture of Mary as perfect and sinless and that that's what we're supposed to follow. But that's never been the case in any other biblical character, right? Only Jesus is sinless biblically. That's what the Bible describes. Only Jesus is perfect. Only Jesus is the one that was the human that never made a mistake. And so when we are to honor characters in the Bible, we're to honor their trust, their faith. We don't look back on Mary and say, she was ontologically different, right? She was superior, and so I will honor her and worship her and pray to her. No, we would, we would disagree with that tradition and say, no, we are to honor her faith. And Elizabeth is going to say very similar things in the next section, right? Elizabeth's going to bless her for believing. And that's what we're saying here. God says, God's going to do miracles, Love initiates. God's breaking into the world. And Mary's response is a response of faith. All right, I believe you. I receive what you're saying. I trust that nothing is impossible with you, God. And so we have this example to follow. I grabbed an ancient picture of Mary and Joseph and one of the angels there at the nativity scene with the halos, right? Nothing wrong with halos, right? Halos are symbolic of holiness, right? That's okay. We can use symbols in our art. That's no big deal. I don't want to pick on that. But what I want to uh, emphasize here is that holiness, glory in human beings comes from Jesus. It comes from our faith in what he has done for us. And this is consistent throughout the scripture. To be holy To be a saint is to be someone who trusts in what Jesus has done for us. We're trusting in the outside righteousness of Christ that's gifted to us. That's what makes us holy. That's what makes us a saint. And so when we look at the story of Mary, yes, we should honor her. We should honor her faith. We should honor her trust. We should honor her response to an initiating God, a God who says, I'm breaking into this world 
and I'm going to bring salvation. I'm going to fix what's broken. And we, like her, should say, yes, Lord, I trust you. Let me be a part of what you're doing in this world. Let me respond in faith. So I guess that's my big question for us before we move on to the next point, is are we taking the posture of trust? Are we responding to the way that love initiates in our life? Do you recognize the story of the God of the universe is holy and perfect, and we have not measured up to his plan for our life? We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and yet he initiates with salvation through Jesus. Jesus came into the world. He lived the perfect life we should have lived. Do you see that in the Christmas story? He died the sacrificial death we should have died. Do you see that? in the Christmas story. He rose from the dead, proving that that he has conquered sin and death forever. Do you see that in this story? And then can you imitate Mary's faith and say, yes, Lord, I receive what you've done for me. I receive the love that you've initiated in my life. We, We call that faith, trust, belief. So only when we imitate the faith of Bible heroes like Abraham and David and Solomon, and Mary, and Ruth, only when we imitate their faith can we have the impact that Bible heroes have. We're not to look back on their life and say, I see Abraham lying to people. I'm going to lie too. I'm going to imitate him, right? No, that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to imitate his faith. We don't look back on David and say, I see David murdering people. I think I'll murder people too. No, we're not to imitate his murdering. We look back and we see biblical characters doing all kinds of crazy things. We are to imitate their faith. And as we imitate their faith, God changes us. Real changes take root in our hearts. We begin to live out new virtues. We begin to love other people. We begin to put away our addictions. We do begin to change, but we don't win God's love because of what we've done. God's love is something that he initiates in our life because of his sovereign goodness and grace. Our job is to respond to that. Our job is to say, yes, Lord, I trust you. I receive your love. Second point is that love brings joy. Love brings joy. We see this in verses 39 through 45. And here's my question before I read the story. Because again, the story is just kind of kind of unfold. We're going to see characters responding to God's love with joy. Plenty of other commands in the New Testament that command joy because of what Jesus has done for us. We're not going to see those kind of commands here. We're just going to kind of, kind of see the story unfold, right? So here's the question as we're reading the story. Are you joying because of God's love? Are you joying right now? Is there joy in your life? I know I'm saying it wrong. I'm trying to like shake you up a little bit, okay? Is joy happening in your life? Is there any joy? Is there rejoicing? Is there smiling? Is there loud proclaiming? That's another thing we'll see here. Is there blessing? In the South, we're a little confused about what that means, right? We, we only say it when someone's an idiot. Bless their heart. That's not exactly what it means. It might be adjacent to the biblical concept of blessing, but it's not exactly the same. Are we blessing? Are we proclaiming God's goodness? Are we leaping for joy? We're going to see leaping for joy here. That's my question for us. Okay, verses 39 through 45. We'll see the story unfold. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So this is uh, the couple we were introduced to last week, the parents of John the Baptist. So they're also having a miracle birth. So she's greeting them. Verse 41, 
When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. I love how Elizabeth ends again with praising Mary's faith. Blessed Mary be your faith. You believed that God really is fulfilling His promises. She's just excited to be close to her Savior, even in the womb. John the Baptist is leaping for joy in her womb. It's this this crazy um, rejoicing that we see taking place. My question for you, my question for me is, do we see the love of God and do we respond with joy? Are we properly celebrating it? I want to be a, a leader in repentance here and say that one of the best things about our church is that we are a church that takes the truth seriously. We will not stop taking the truth seriously. That is who we are. But there's this problem we see in Christian history where the people that take the truth seriously sit over here, and then the people that rejoice in God's goodness sit over here. And we don't always mix together real well. And I just want to lead in repentance and say, if I take the truth seriously, I should also be rejoicing. I should also be smiling. I should be happy because of what God is doing in my life and in the world. And I just want to confess, I don't always do that well. I often say, well, if I have to choose one, I'll be serious, right? No, we, we need to also leap for joy. We also need to rejoice. Are you rejoicing? Am I rejoicing? Are we smiling? Are we celebrating? This leaping for joy is, is crazy. You see a lot in pictures. I, I grabbed a picture of a couple from their wedding uh, leaping in the air. I see this a lot. I had a couple of kids get married in the last few years. You know, one kid got married like five years ago. One kid just got married this year. They always do this in the wedding pictures. I don't know if y'all did this in your wedding pictures. I don't think it was happening back in the dark ages when we got married. Um, maybe we weren't, we weren't as good at jumping. I don't know. I see it in prom pictures on Facebook too. It's just this thing, right? Let's capture the moment. We're so happy. We're leaping in the air. Here's the thing. It's not so much about getting a picture of it. It's like, are we actually celebrating rejoicing people, right? Like, is it real? And that's what I'm praying for us. I'm praying that we would be a rejoicing people. I'm praying that we would be a real celebrating people. Again, as, as Christians, we want to be clear. We are called to rejoice and to weep. We're also called to be honest about hard things. Like, that's part of it. Romans 12 says, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Like, we're, we're called to both things, but we should rejoice and Here's the crazy paradox of the Christian faith is that Christians are the people that should be really honest about how hard things are. Like we should be the kind of people that can cry freely. The world is broken. And at the same time, being the most rejoicingest people around. We have this example of Paul and Silas being thrown in jail and they rejoiced, right? I'm sure they cried when they got whipped and beat up and stoned. And then they also rejoice that they got to share in Christ's sufferings. May we be those kinds of supernatural people. Only the Holy Spirit can do that in our life. Only the gospel transforming our hearts can do that. Where we would actually rejoice at what God is doing in the world, even though it may be a hard day today. This, 
this morning as we were worshiping together. It was one of those days where I was just like weeping and rejoicing at the same time. Been a hard year, been a hard week. And I don't know if you've found this, but I found often the times of worship that feel the most real are in the middle of those weeks that are the hardest weeks. I'm just worn out. I'm just tired, just beat up. And yet as I'm singing together with God's people, I'm being reminded God is on the throne. He shall reign forever and ever. I did not want to stop singing that this morning. When everything else is falling apart, we have to remember that God is sovereign. He's on the throne and he's not only sovereign, he's kind, he's near to us. And our need for his grace and our need for his forgiveness. He's with you. So we should be a rejoicing people. We should be a weeping people and a, and a rejoicing people. One of the examples of this funny word, leaping for joy, right? I had to go look this up because it's like, well, that's kind of crazy. A baby leaping in the womb. That's, that's weird, right? We can, we can acknowledge that's strange. So I did a little word search and I found where else Luke is using this word, leaping for joy. And he uses it just a few chapters later in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 is uh, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Some people call it the Sermon on the Plain because it's like almost exactly the same as the Matthew Sermon, but slight variations. We assume Jesus maybe preached some of the same material in different places. But in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is talking about being blessed when people hate us, when people exclude us, when people insult us and slander us because of Jesus' name. And then he says this in Luke 6.23, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. So we, we live this crazy supernatural life where if we get beat up, yes, weep. Ask for prayer. Cry with your friends and rejoice. Leap for joy. God calls us to both. We should celebrate. Now, applicationally, we offer you a great opportunity to do this. We've put it on the schedule. Every week, we've invited you to gather with us in the same room and scream God's praises to him for 30 minutes every week. So don't miss that opportunity. One of the things we do for those of you that don't know all the songs we do, because we have a culture where everybody comes from different places, right? We embrace that. That's, that's okay. That's good and beautiful. We don't all know the same songs. So we, we publish the songs every week. We put them out on Facebook. You can look them up every week. You can listen to them. You can practice. Do a little choir practice before you show up on Sunday mornings. And then come ready to rejoice. God gives us this stated, regular opportunity to loudly exult, to cry out with a loud voice. Some of you might worry about not being able to sing on pitch. It's okay. Just scream as loud as you can, okay? Just scream as loud as you can. We have loud speakers. We'll drown you out with the good stuff. It'll be just fine. But if we're all singing as loud as we can, it's going to be awesome. If, if you rejoice, it's going to help me rejoice. And if I rejoice, it's going to help you rejoice. And this is just a practical way we can rejoice week after week. If there's an obstacle in the way, tear it down. But come meet with us week after week and rejoice in God's goodness. And then we see all these other things too as well. A little more scary, right? Like leaping. Maybe you should try leaping more. I'm not sure about that one. As I get older, it seems more dangerous. (laughs) 
proclaiming loudly that God is good, declaring his goodness, talking about it to others, blessing, right? I joked about, we say bless your heart in the South. A lot of times if someone's stupid, you're like, oh, bless their heart. Um, Blessing really is just proclaiming that God is at work in someone's life. So you don't have to use the word bless. That might sound hokey and Southern to you. You can just say, I see what God is doing. Look at God at work in your life. God is good. That's blessing someone. That's blessing God. That's what Elizabeth is doing with Mary here. So we can declare, we can speak of, we can celebrate what God is doing, and that's God's love bringing joy in our life. Okay, last point. God's love puts life in perspective. God's love puts life in perspective. We see this in verses 46 through 56. Uh, We have a long uh, bit of poetry here. We're not sure exactly how Mary proclaimed this. This is a little bit like rap or spoken word. She might have sung it. We're not sure culturally exactly how she would have said this or shouted this, right? But what I can be sure of is she is uh, speaking God's word. As she's speaking what she's speaking here, as we see it in verses 46 through 56, there's all kind of just nonstop quotes and allusions from the Old Testament. So this is a young lady who has been memorizing God's word. And now when crazy things happen, God's word erupts out of her. So my prayer is not only would we be a rejoicing people, but we would be a people who meditate on God's word, who hide God's word in our heart so that when crazy things happen, we erupt with God's word. That's, that's what Mary is doing here. She's not just making this all up out of whole cloth. She's like quoting and alluding and paraphrasing prophets and Psalms and stuff from the Old Testament. That's what we see here in verses 46 through 56. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Just doing what we were just talking about. And it's an interesting contrast in the story because Elizabeth was kind of magnifying Mary, right? Mary, you're awesome. God's at work in your life. I'm so proud of your faith, your belief. And then Mary responds with, I'm going to magnify the Lord, the initiating love of God. My soul magnifies the Lord. That's why it's historically called the Magnificat. That's the Latin word for magnify. This is uh, Mary's magnify song, right? My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Verse 48, for he's looked on the humble estate of a servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So he's come into the life of this humble servant, this poor little girl that lives in the sticks of a little town in Israel that's being oppressed under the boot of Rome. And she's saying, God's visited us, forgotten people, poor people, oppressed people. Behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Throughout our Proverbs series, we saw fear as recognizing God's awesomeness. It's, a, it's another word for faith. It's another word for trust, saying God is bigger than anything else. I value him. I weight him. I glorify him as bigger and scarier than anything else. So she says, his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. We keep seeing reversals here. The ones in the world who think they're awesome are brought down. And those who think that God has forgotten them are being lifted up, saved, and exalted. Verse 53, he's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy 
as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. God's love puts things in perspective. When all we see is self, it's hard for us to see the world clearly. But God's love puts things in perspective. God's love reverses. These leaders, these mighty ones, these great and strong ones who think that they can live life without God, and then that leads to oppression and hurting others. God says, I'm going to bring them down. And those who are weak and needy and are crying out for God to save, he says, I will bring you up. Jesus speaks about this concept in the New Testament. He says, I haven't come for the healthy, but for the sick. He says it's impossible for the rich to be saved. What is he saying here? Well, he's not saying in a really specific way that if you generally have good health, you're going to hell. That's not what he's saying, right? Or if you have money, you're going to hell. No, he says be careful because when you're strong and you have good health or when you're wealthy and you have a lot of money, there's going to be such a great temptation to think that you can save yourself, to think that you don't need Jesus, that you don't need God, that you yourself are your own security. So just watch out for that. If you have money, if you have health, but you acknowledge and fear God, and you recognize his greatness and your need of him, and you reach out to him in faith, he will save you because he's our only hope. And so here in the story, we're seeing God putting things in proper perspective, uh, one of my favorite examples of this years ago, I think it was like 30 years ago, I read an article by John Piper, and he talked about glorifying God, magnifying God doesn't mean we take a small God and make him big. It means we recognize the bigness that's already there. And so Piper in this article used the difference between a microscope and a telescope. They do two different things, right? A microscope takes small things and makes them appear bigger. A telescope takes big things and makes them appear closer. And that's what we're doing when we glorify God. That's what we're doing when we magnify God. We're putting things in their proper perspective. When I'm living in a world without God and no reference to him, things are out of perspective. They are out of whack because God is there and he is real. He is ever-present. When I acknowledge that, that, that puts me in my proper perspective. That puts him in proper perspective. And then I can live the life of faith. Uh, we see this more and more with this great telescope uh, technology we have. I, I found a picture from the Hubble telescope. There's a new James Webb telescope as well. We're just seeing all kinds of incredible pictures from the other side of the universe. It's just incredible, beautiful things. Those things are there. They're beautiful. They're awesome. The telescope enables us to see it in proper perspective because we're so far away, we can't properly see it without the tool. And so, and a little aside of this, this is interesting. People talk about this in apologetics. The earth is one of the unique places in the universe where we can actually view the rest of the universe. I don't know if you've heard this before. Um, scientists will say, if you go to other planets, you can't see the rest of the universe. It's almost like God planned it, right? Like Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And God says, well, I'm going to put them on earth where they can see the glory in the heavens so we can magnify God. He is amazing. He is big. He is incredible. And so this song by Mary, this 
spoken word, this poetry by Mary is a putting things in proper perspective. And we need to do that in our life as well. You may not be as gifted at writing as Mary is, but you can take the step of learning God's word, of hiding it in your heart. Are you memorizing God's word? You can memorize individual verses, right? I think it's really helpful to memorize the Romans road. We've had these little bookmarks on the bookshelf in the hallway that have the Roman road. It's basically a recitation in four or five verses, key verses in Romans that explain the good news that we've all fallen short of God's glory. Yet while we are still sinners, Christ died for us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If we just trust in Jesus, we will be saved, right? It's like unfolding that. But if you memorize the scripture, you can put words to that story. So when hard things come, you can speak of these glorious things. It's also really helpful to memorize whole chunks of scripture, right? Like the poetry of of, uh, Psalm 23, the shepherd psalm. Great psalm to memorize. Just memorize the whole thing. Or, Or Romans chapter eight, a long chapter, but just... So much glory and goodness that puts life and our groaning in perspective as we see the glory of God exalted over our daily life. As you hide God's word in your heart, you'll be able to better put life in perspective. One of the things that's going on right now, we have this Christmas creative project for the Advent season. Um, you can go to begrace.org slash Christmas creative. We've got people making poetry, doing rap, writing songs, uh, painting pictures, doing sculptures, writing short stories. It's just an expression of members in the body of Christ celebrating the incarnation of Jesus as we slow down at Advent to meditate on hope and love and joy and peace. You can still join that if you want to. Just a creative project of declaring, magnifying the Lord through creative means. Here's one that's, that's really good, and this sounds like manipulation, right? Because I'm the pastor of the church, and I need you to do this, okay? But it's still true. Teaching little kids— Teaching little kids is a fantastic way to practice declaring the mighty works of God, to get better at it. As you teach children, they'll ask you hard questions. And you'll be like, I don't know. I better go back and read my Bible more, right? But it's, it's such a great practice. It, it grows you in your own faith. It puts things in perspective as you try to declare the mighty acts of God to others and to try to teach others. It's a great opportunity for you to grow in this ability to put life in perspective. And then finally, we'll, we'll finish with this one. One of the great ways that love puts life in perspective is when we've hit rock bottom. Um, too often, as Christians, we want to wait until everything's perfect in our life to tell anybody about Jesus. Uh, but that's not the way it works, right? We saw the Luke chapter 6 quote earlier about how when things are really hard, then you'll leap for joy, Right? 1 Peter 3 describes this. One of the greatest opportunities you will have to testify to God's goodness is when life is really hard, when life is really difficult. He says it this way in 1 Peter 3. It's a whole whole book about suffering, really. And in this section, he's talking specifically about suffering for following Jesus. And in 1 Peter 3.15, he says, In your hearts, honor Christ as holy and always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That word defense is a word translated in modern English, we call it apologetics. Uh, It's being able to give a reason for our faith. And it's really ironic because it often becomes an ivory tower academic exercise. I mean, I love apologetics. You can study all these great reasons why we're smarter than non-Christians and stuff like that and give good reasons for it. But really, in context, 
It's not academic reasons. It's broken people saying, I still hope in Jesus. I mean, the academic reasons aren't bad. Don't hear me the wrong way. Study those things. But the opportunities arise when life is hard. The opportunity will arise when the cancer comes back. And your friends are like, why do you, why do you still hope in Jesus? Or when you lose all your money. And people are going to ask you, now, now why do you still hope in Jesus? Or when everything goes wrong. And you say, I still hope in Jesus. I still trust him. He's able to show me by his love, his goodness. And I can put life in perspective. And so I want to encourage you, when you've hit rock bottom, look to Jesus and you'll have opportunities to declare his mighty acts. But we need to wrap up here. Um, 1 John 4, I mentioned at the beginning, it's a really good definition of love. 1 John 4, 10 through 11 talks about how love changes us. And it says it this way. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. You hear that? That's the emphasis in scripture. It's his initiation. God started it. Not me, not you. This is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Big word, often translated atonement. It means literally God has made himself happy with us. He's pleased with you because of Jesus. He sent his son to be this happy sacrifice for our sins. And he goes on and says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is completed in us. We live in a supernatural world and as we see the love of God and trust him, it changes us. We love other people and then other people see that supernatural love of God as well. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that your spirit changes our hearts as we look and trust in what you've done. Thank you for taking our sin. Thank you for giving us resurrection life. Thank you for showing us what life should look like as you came into this world in humility. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to transform us, make us new. We pray that your love would change us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.